All right, so if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1, that is our text this morning. And so today we are continuing through our series uh, called Unfolding Grace. This is week 19. And so as you may know by now, if you've been uh, coming for a while or joining us in our readings, our, our sermons are corresponding with what we're reading um, throughout the weeks in Unfolding Grace. And the reason we've, we've made it a goal of ours to read through this book and preach through this book is because we want you guys to have a grasp on the story of the Bible, right? Like we believe that all 66 books of the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, that if you were to open the first page and start in Genesis 1 and you were to to finish up in Revelation 22, that if you went through it from beginning to end, it is telling us one big, beautiful, seamless story of God's work throughout history to redeem a people unto himself. And I, I, man, I believe in my guts that if, if we could grab hold of this, story, like really get it, then we would have a better grasp on who God is, on what God's done, on what he is doing, on what he will do, and on like who we are, like where we kind of fit in God's redemptive narrative as participants. And so um, that's why we're in this series. We've still got a ways to go. Um, but man, hopefully you're starting to see the story unfold progressively more and more as we keep going. So to kick off our time, I'm gonna ask you a question and it is gonna require some vulnerability, but I want you to answer. I wanna see hands, not like a this kind of hand, but like, like be proud, okay? Raise your hand if you have watched the entirety of or maybe even just an episode of, <laughs> an episode of Game of Thrones. Okay, so the, the Game of Thrones folk come to 11 o'clock, all right. I see you, okay, all right. Hey, no shame. I, like, I tried um, watching two episodes my freshman year of college and I fell asleep both times and so if you're just wondering, it, you know, that's more my character than anything. But um, okay, so we've got some Game of Thrones folk, great. Um, how about The Crown? Has anybody seen The Crown on Netflix? Okay, great, great, great show. You should check it out. It's a good show. Um, Survivor. Praise God for you, brothers and sisters. So I, I've kind of within, like I've made it a thing now. I'm gonna try and tie Survivor into as many sermons as I possibly can. So if you're keeping score, it's two right now. That's where I'm at. So. Okay, great, so here's the thing. I I ask that question for a reason because the story that we're gonna be getting into today, at least to me, as we read it, it seems a little Game of Thronesy, right? Or it seems a little survivory, if you can say that, right? We're we're gonna get a glimpse into the nature of man, like the the, the heart of man. We're gonna get a glimpse into um, the, the, the heart of several different characters as the throne of Israel becomes vacant and characters in our story begin making moves and hopes to take hold of the power and authority that comes with the crown. And we're gonna see in our story a moment in Israel's history where several different players, different characters try to outwit, outlast, and outplay the others for my survivor people. And all the while, we're also going to see the hand of God at work. 
right, we're gonna see God moving to keep his promise, the promise that he made to David, and, and also in doing that, we're gonna see God moving the story of his unfolding grace forward. And so last week, Bobby, if you were here, he covered 2 Samuel seven through eight. Specifically, he focused on the incredible promise that God made to David, which reads this in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so I'd encourage you, if you didn't hear Bobby's sermon last week, go listen to it. It's fantastic, just covering this passage. But like, just as a reminder for all of us, this is a moment like God made this promise to David, King David, as he was sitting in his palace, like kind of looking out over the kingdom, right? I mean, it, it, it's like, man, David is in his palace. There's peace, there's prosperity, their borders are strong. Uh, Jerusalem has kind of extended its, its, uh, its width and it's, like it's, a, it's grown. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, they've been put into Jerusalem. I mean, man, things are going great. It, it's great right now in Israel at the moment that God gives this promise. And David is sitting there and he's just looking out, admiring all that God's done for, for Israel. And he just has this thought, oh my gosh, like I'm in a palace and God's in that dingy tent? Like how hypocritical, how messed up is it? Like I have this house and God's got a tent where his presence and the ark of it, like that's so much. God, I'm gonna build you a house and it's gonna be amazing, it's gonna be beautiful. And, and how does God respond? He says essentially, oh, you're gonna build me a house, brother. Hmm. No, I'm gonna build you a house. I'm gonna establish your throne and it will last forever. It will be this everlasting dynasty beginning with your own son. So again, this is a moment in Israel's history where just, man, it, it, like it had to feel like they arrived, right? Our king, he's awesome, God's anointed, a man after God's own heart, peace, prosperity, strong. I mean, it's, man, we've, 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 we've made it, right? But then we open up to 1 Kings and we read these somber words. Now King David was old and advanced in years, which, uh, children, do not say that to your mom on Mother's Day. <laughs> and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. And so they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all of the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. So to this point, it's been about 40 years since David has ascended to the throne as king of Israel and we read here that his health is failing him. Right, once again, Father Time proves to be victorious, proves to be undefeated and so 
Here, David, as he lies in his chamber, is a shell of the king that he once was. He's a shell of the man that he once was, given that in his youth, I mean, this is David, right? David, the one who slayed Goliath with just a slingshot. It's not like just knocked him out. Like David did that. It's David who paraded through Jerusalem as, as people cheered and laughed and chanted and sung like, yeah, Saul has, has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I mean, that David is now so frail and fragile and weak that no amount of clothing or blankets could keep him warm. And his attendees, man, it's like they're just so desperate to kind of like preserve their king to figure out how to solve this problem that they're like, okay, okay, blankets aren't working, clothes aren't working, how do we get him to warm up? We gotta get the blood pumping somehow to warm his body up. Here's what we'll do. Let's have a Miss Israel uh, pageant and figure out, find, like who's the prettiest woman out there and bring her into David. And so the text says they searched Israel and they found Abishag to be of service of him. Now, um, there are some clues here in the text that would indicate to us that Abishag wasn't brought to David to just be a companion who gave him a warm hug whenever he got a little chilly. That's not what she was there for. They brought her in to be of service to the king in even sexual matters because they're thinking, what will warm the king? How do we get the blood pumping? Well, we know David loves a beautiful young woman, so let's go get a beautiful young woman for David. And they bring her in, and the text tells us that not even this beautiful young woman could get, could stir David to life. Says he knew her not. Had no interest. He was so frail, so weak, so void of life. Now in one sense, if we've examined David's life past the uh, 2 Samuel 7 promise, it might make some sense to us why David is kind of the way that he is. I mean, we know that after that incredible promise, David then goes on and, and lusts after Bathsheba. She bathed on the rooftop and orchestrated the murder of her husband Uriah following David's adultery with her. And we know that David endured the emotional heartache of losing his unborn child, the one that Bathsheba was carrying after his affair. We know that David was also pursued two different times as two different people sought to kill him and steal the throne, one of whom was his son, Absalom. I mean, if you think of David for all of his triumphs and all of his strengths and all of the ways in which he sought to honor the Lord, he was still a neglectful husband, a passive father, and in several cases, a lazy king. And I'm not saying that to like indict David. Like I'm not saying that to, to throw shade at the guy. He was still Israel's greatest king. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved and served the Lord. The text over and over and over affirms that in us. But David's got a lot of life under his belt, doesn't he? A lot's happened since 2 Samuel 7. And the text shows us that David was still just a man. Right, David was like the rest of us a sinner after all. David, like the rest of us, was limited and we're reminded of that here in 1 Kings 1 as David, like the rest of us, is struck with the reality that he too has an expiration date. We know it as the readers. He knew it in the moment and apparently so did some other people. So we get to verse five. And it says, now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. 
and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. And so we get introduced to Adonijah into this story in particular and we know that he's the oldest living son of David as far as we can tell from the text. And he seems to have a pretty good read on how things are going with his father, right? Like he knows David's about to die. The throne's about to be empty. We need a new king and he says to himself, I will be that king. In fact, the text says that he exalted himself saying, I will be king. He wanted the throne and now's his opportunity to go get it, right? The text says that he starts to build this kind of entourage. He kind of starts to build his crew. He's thinking, who do I need and what do I need to make this thing seem legit? So he's pulling in all these people. Now, before we get to some of that, a couple things that I want to draw our attention to that I think the text is, is trying to like show us about uh, Adonijah first, he's David's son. And so theoretically, as a son of David, we would think he has a claim to the throne. I mean, he certainly thinks he does. God said he'd put David's son on the, like, I'm his son, why not me? Second thing we know about him is that daddy never told him no. So David never said anything to displease him. Why'd you do that? Like there's no discipline. It was just yes. Like he, again, David, for all of his victories and, and triumphs, he was a passive dad, a, a neglectful dad. And so daddy never told him no. Daddy's on his deathbed. Is he gonna start saying no now? Probably not. And then the third thing we see is that he was very handsome. Now where have we heard that before? Saul, right? Ooh, that Saul. That dude was bad, right? I mean, he's handsome. He's a good-looking guy. He was strong, attractive, I mean, tall, right? I mean, Israel saw Saul, and they were like, him. Give us that guy. We want that guy, right? So we've seen how this plays out. And so the text is here saying, yeah, Adonijah, he's a looker. And so, as far as we know, he's the son of David. He's, uh, daddy never told him no. Why would he start now? Oh, and he's handsome. He's a good looking guy, strong and attractive and full of life and zeal. Who's gonna say no or be displeased with Adonijah, the son of David? And what I love is that the Bible, which has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, has just this unique way of revealing to us both kind of the, the, the nature or the, the heart of characters that we read, like you kind of start to see them for who they really are. And in doing that, the Holy Spirit's also revealing who we are, right? Like he's showing us something about our own hearts as we read about guys like Adonijah. Like, here's a question for the room. Again, I love involvement. So how many of you have ever said or even heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover? Okay, nailed it. Everybody, right? Why do you think that phrase or that little proverb continues to live on? Probably because we really like to judge a book by its cover. I mean, that's just kind of what we do, right? Like I had a conversation with a friend the other day and we were talking about a, like a prayer journal and we were like, ooh, that's cool, that's cool. Yeah, but does it look cool? I mean, like it was a literal book. We were like, man, but if it's ugly, am I gonna buy it? Like, 
That, and we, we do that with little things, we do that with people, right? Like, and, and I'm gonna say this, and I, I, I don't feel bad for me when I say this, okay? Like, there's a reason nobody's knocking on my door asking the five, six bald guy with a dad bod to, to like strut around and model men's swimsuits. There's a reason for that. Again, you don't have to feel bad for me. I don't feel bad for myself. But it's just the reality. Like there's a reason there are people who are famous for literally nothing except being hot. That's a thing. Instagram influencers, that's a thing. And a friend in college, uh, just like the sweetest guy in the world. I mean, literally, I mean, he's a gigantic dude, but just so tender and, and he, uh, he calls me, like it's been six years since college. He calls me like at least once a month and I'm a terrible person. I, sometimes I'm busy and I don't answer and then I forget to call back. But he's like, he's so faithful to call once a month just to literally just say, hey, how you doing? Just wants to check in. Hey man, I'm praying for you. How's Kristen? How's Taya? How's work? What's going on? Let's talk, like just, he just wants to know how I'm doing. Well in college, his Instagram handle was, it's just my face. You know why? Because in college, nobody wanted to like hang out with him because they all thought he was a bully and he would beat them up. Like legit, would walk around and people were like, oh, like go the other way because they were terrified of this dude. And, and to be fair, he's like, yeah, I look like a bully. He knows it, hence it's just my face, right? So I say all that to say, we're not that different. <laughs> Things haven't changed that much. Israel has a way of looking on the outside and saying, that's our guy. And we learned with Saul that the Lord sees not as man sees because man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Adonijah, he may be unfit to lead, but he looks good. He's got the name. Daddy never said no. So now he's gonna get the right people involved to seal the deal. It says that he gets chariots and horsemen as his royal procession. It says that he gets Joab, this ruthless militant uh, who served as a commander in David's army. He gets uh, Abiathar, a priest, and then he gets almost all of David's sons except for one, Solomon, to come to the party. We're gonna see how that was an issue. And then together, Adonijah and his crew, they, they, man, they roll out of Jerusalem. They head to the Serpent Stone near the spring called Enrogel, which just is just along the territory lines of Judah and Benjamin. And so it's like they're, they're not too far, but they're not close to Jerusalem. They're, they're like, let's go to a private place to make this thing official. So they set up shop around the Serpent Stone, which you have to wonder, it, like, is this a play on words? Like when you hear the word the serpent or serpent, where does your mind go? Okay, yeah, Genesis three, Satan, right? We, we think about Genesis three, the serpent coming into the garden to deceive Adam and Eve. We think of Satan who, who we know, the Bible tells us was an angel uh, who, who served in the presence of God and then was cast out of God's presence because he wanted to usurp the power and authority from God as if that could ever happen and so now we read of Adonijah going to the serpent's stone, him and his crew making sacrifices as they try to usurp the throne from David, the throne in which God himself established, the throne in which God himself promised to give to David forever. And so they go, they set up shop, they sacrifice, 
They seal the deal, they have a feast together in private, kind of outside of the city, and they're long live king Adonijah. We did it. Now, Adonijah, as crafty as he was, made a few major missteps. In, in particular, there were a few people that didn't get invited to the party. Here's who they were the king wasn't invited to the party. Be an awkward invite. Nathan, the prophet of Israel, was not invited to the party. Bathsheba and Solomon, the queen and David's son, were not invited to the party. Benaiah, another one of David's captains in the military, not invited. The mighty men of David, not invited. And Zadok, the high priest of Israel, not invited. And so if you happen to catch three major players not at this party, the prophet who spoke the words of God to Israel, the high priest, who was the mediator between God and his people, and then the king who was anointed by God to reign and rule as his representative in his place with his people on his behalf, not invited to the party. And so Nathan the prophet, who knows the promise, who spoke the promise in 2 Samuel 7, he gets clued into what's happening, and so he goes to Bathsheba, and they come up with uh, what one commentator called a holy conspiracy. I love that. He, he goes to Bathsheba, and they come up with a plan to ruin Adonijah's parade. It says in verse 11, then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not my lord the king swear to your servant saying Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. And so Nathan approaches Bathsheba and he's like, okay, here's the game plan. Here's what we're gonna do, all right? You're gonna go to the king. You're gonna remind him of what he promised you. You're gonna tell him about what's going on. You're, you're, gonna, like, you're gonna go in and inform him, like just kinda, listen David, you gotta understand what's happening. And like as you do that, I'm gonna come in right behind you and, and like the one-two punch, right? If you've got multiple kids, they've probably pu pulled this on you, um, where one's like, hey mom, and the other one's like, ma, right? Like it's, you don't even have time to think about what's going on, right? And so we see Bathsheba makes her way to David. And, and if you just think about it for a second, Bathsheba comes into the king's court, or comes into the king's quarters, and who's, who's there? David and Abishag, this young, beautiful woman brought to warm him up, hanging out with her husband. And, and I, man, the text tells us Bathsheba goes in there and she just humbles herself before the Lord and is like, listen, I gotta, I, I gotta tell you what's going on. So she goes in and she makes her appeal to David, appeals to the promise that Solomon would reign as king, informs David that Adonijah, if he wins, he will in fact kill us. Like he's not just gonna be content with us hanging out. Like David, if he wins, me and your son are dead. We're done. And then it's like before she can get the last breath out, Nathan is like, bam, he's in there and he's like, listen, David, says all the same stuff and then he says, oh, by the way, people in Israel are chanting, long live King Adonijah. David, what are you gonna do about this? 
And it's in this moment that David, to this point, has been completely unaware of the happenings in in his kingdom, is made keenly aware of the fact that Adonijah, his son, is making an attempt at the throne, and the implications of this are far greater than just, I guess it's not Solomon. Like the implications of this here is that Adonijah is attempting to thwart the very promise of God. Like this isn't just an attack on David or Solomon, it's an attack on the purposes and promises of God to David and to Israel and this is what stirs David up. Like I love it, like this young beautiful woman, David's like no, but like you start messing with the promises of God to the people of God, to the king, like he's like let's go. This stirs him up. And so he acts. David says to Bathsheba, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity? As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. And so we read David, after he he says this to Bathsheba, we read about him like calling together uh, Zadok the high priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the commander, these V-I-S-P's of people who didn't make the cut to Adonijah's party. And he instructs them to lead Solomon, put him on the back of the king's donkey, lead him through Jerusalem. We want this to be a public spectacle. Lead him through Take him to Gishon, and when you get there, anoint him with oil as king over Israel. And so they did exactly as David instructed. Verse 39 says, There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. I love how the text describes this moment, right? Solomon's anointed, he's king over Israel, and and then there are just trumpets blasting, people cheering, people dancing, pipes playing, people hooping and hollering, and long live King Solomon, so much so that, that over here as they're celebrating near Jerusalem, the noise cuts through the air, and makes it all the way to Adonijah and his crew who are still over here having this little intimate feast thinking, long live our king. Not knowing what just went down in the city. And I love the story, it tells us that as the, the noise of this, this like just earth splitting celebration cuts through and makes it to Adonijah and his crew, like what do you think their response is, right? You would expect it, maybe they're like, okay, so someone else wants to be king. There we go, Let's time to throw down, right? No, the text tells us that they hear this noise and they're like, uh-oh, what's that? And the text tells us Jonathan rolls up and they're like, oh, brother, you've, you've got good news, right? Huh? And he's like, no. No good news for you today, my friend. And and instead of kind of gearing up to to rally behind their new king, they scatter. Right? Long live King Solomon? Gone. He even says that Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, he ran and took hold of the horns of the altar. So he goes to the the one place he thinks, surely nothing's going to happen to me. I will be safe if I go to the tabernacle. 
And as we'll find out later, it did not serve him as well as he thought it would. But chapter, end, chapter one ends with Solomon ascending to the throne and being crowned the rightful king over Israel. And then you read chapter two and you'll, you'll read this week if you're going through unfolding grace of, of uh, David imparting some wisdom to Solomon. Hey, here's how you need to secure your kingdom. Walk with God and then kill these people. <laughs> Sweet. And then you'll read about him praying for wisdom and God giving Solomon this wisdom. And then uh, you, you'll also get to read a story this week of Solomon uh, practicing that gift of wisdom as two prostitutes come into his chamber and they're like, this is my daughter, this is my daughter. And he says, well, let's cut the baby in half. And you're like, it's, it's crazy. I decided not to preach that one on Mother's Day. Um, but all the while, all the while, man, Solomon is king, not Adonijah. And I say that to say, Adonijah, while his coronation had all the pomp and splendor, all the people and seemingly all the necessary pieces to make it legit, the problem was, the thing that he missed was, the throne was never his to take because it was always God's to give. Right, the problem was, he wasn't the chosen, appointed king. And so, if we're looking for takeaways, just things that we can kind of grab hold of in this text, here's the first one. It's that God uses messy people and messy circumstances to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. Like, you'll, you'll notice this week as you read through this story on your own, there's not one moment in this story where God intervenes or interjects. Like, there's no, thus saith the Lord's in 1 Kings 1. And, and we might read that and conclude, well, then I guess, like, man, I'm so glad it worked out well. Because God just, man, that could have been so bad. What was he doing? Where was God? Like, we might land at that conclusion, but that's not the biblical conclusion. The conclusion that we land at is that even still, God saw, God ordained, God allowed, and God used every action and every person involved to fulfill the promise that he made to David. Like this is called the providence of God, which as a doctrine of the Christian faith just seeks to explain that very fact that God sees and cares about and is intimately involved in all of the affairs of his creation. Like nothing, just kind of like, God doesn't miss anything, in fact he, upholds and sustains everything and he uses everything, literally everything, to bring about his good and perfect will. And so, uh, right or wrong, good or bad, God's gonna use it. And while this doesn't cancel out our responsibility as humans to make choices, it does mean that God sees, that God cares about, and God uses every decision, every choice, every action to accomplish his will. It was Adonijah's wickedness and selfishness that God used to stir David up to action. Not the pretty young girl, but it was Adonijah that God used to stir David up, to protect the throne, to protect the people, to protect his family, to protect the promise of God, and to bring about in part the fulfillment of the promise that he made. And church, man, this is good news for us. Like this is, this is good news for you because it means, church, God sees you. It means that God cares for you. It means that God's like, intimately involved 
in all of your affairs, big or small, good or bad, right or wrong, it doesn't matter. He uses literally everything to bring about his will and to bring people to to know him and to love him and to, to worship him. Which means there's no action on your part that is so broken, so messed up, so nasty that God cannot and will not use it to bring honor and glory to his name and to draw you closer to himself. Church, your sin is not beyond the redemptive work of God. The second thing, and I'm gonna fly by this one because Bobby did a whole sermon on it last week and it's awesome, so just go listen to it. Um, But the second thing is that God keeps his promises. We see that this week, we saw it last week. Again, um, if you go listen to Bobby's sermon, he gave us this resource, this list of all of the, like a bunch of the promises of God in scripture. Like, Like, get familiar with those. It'll serve us well. But God is a promise keeping God. He can be no other, he can do no less. This is who he is. We see it play out. He made a promise to David and fulfilled it against all odds. And we see it in other ways in scripture. And then the third and final takeaway, church, is that there is a better king. As Bobby said last week, the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 doesn't point simply to Solomon or to any of the other kings, it points through Solomon and through all the other kings until it lands at our true and better king, Jesus Christ. Right, so even as we read about Solomon's coronation, we get a glimpse into the ultimate fulfillment of this blessed promise. Like Jesus, like Solomon, was a descendant of the house of David. That's from Matthew 1. Right, Jesus, like Solomon, rode on the back of a donkey, not only like, through Jerusalem, but to the heart of Jerusalem in a way that Solomon did. We read that in Matthew 21. Jesus, like Solomon, was anointed as king, only it wasn't oil, it was the presence of the Holy Spirit descending as a dove as Jesus was baptized in the waters. That's in Matthew 3. Jesus, like Solomon, received a crown, only his was thorny and mangled. And Jesus, like Solomon, ascended to his throne, only unlike Solomon to get there, he had to suffer and die. And while Solomon too eventually died, unlike Solomon, Jesus came back. He rose on the third day and remains alive forever. And after that glorious resurrection, he ascended to the heavens and he sat down on his heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father where he now reigns and rules in victory as the resurrected Lord of life. He's reigning still and ruling still in the hearts of his people and one day he will reign and rule over all the earth for all to see in splendor and glory and majesty. And in 1 Kings 2 and 3, we're gonna read this week of Solomon, like I said, like eliminating some of his enemies to establish his throne. And while one day, scripture tells us, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, right now, the invitation of Jesus, King Jesus to his enemies is Come to me, just come. He invites his enemies to come. See, the heartbeat of the Christian faith is love, specifically the love of God displayed and experienced through the grace of God and the mercy of God which has been extended to us in Jesus Christ, the true and better king. 
It's his life, his death, his resurrection, which has made it possible for us to enter into his kingdom by faith so that as sinners, we might be welcomed in as saints and citizens, fully, freely, and forever forgiven of our sin and rebellion and welcomed to come and dine with our king. And so church, his invitation is to come. If you know him, his invitation is come. Come dine with me. We're gonna dine with him in a minute as soon as I get off the stage. His invitation, if you don't know Jesus right now is come to me. There's room in my kingdom for you. Come and dine with your king, church, King Jesus. Long live King Jesus forever and ever and ever may he reign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, for the the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, we thank you that even now, Jesus, you are sitting on your throne, reigning and ruling in our hearts and in our lives. God, help us to be obedient to you. Help us to love you. God, bless us now as we dine with you as we come before your throne of grace and worship. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.